Hey everyone, Andrew and John here. Welcome to the podcast. On today's episode, love and kettlebells, marital ecstasy, and becoming a wedgie. This is Obstacle Course. Here we go. <laughs> Andrew and John here. Yeah, you y'all. Switched, switched it up for those astute listeners. I did. And what happened when the first time I switched it up, Andrew? I was like, what are you doing? Yeah, and you cut. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're like, I hate it. I'm just not used to you putting me first. Yeah, well, what we learned in this conversation today is about the wedge is we can change our experience. Mm-hmm. We don't have to do the same thing every week, Andrew. Yeah, we can change our response to yeah to stimulus. That's right. basically the concept of the wedge is changing response to st- stimulus because there's stimuli out there all the time and they sometimes uh, kidnap our attention, which is an ep- uh, a topic that we basically delved into for an entire episode yeah. is what what takes our attention and and this is becoming aware of that stimulus and deciding how we're going to respond and and yeah rather than just reacting but responding and even sometimes changing the stimulus which is yeah another option because often we think as, as scott says in the book that emotions are something that just happened to us and we're like oh okay i'm feeling super angry right now so i'm i guess i'm angry yeah or oh i'm ang- i'm anxious i'm just gonna stay anxious or someone being like you make me so mad right yeah but no they don't yeah. They don't go into your head no. and create emotions in your brain. Yeah, that doesn't actually—it's not physically possible. So, but it's such an easy thing to say. Oh, this per- person just makes me so mad, or yeah, I work makes me so stressed. But that's not—that's our own framing of the situation. That's not reality. Yeah, and so honestly, folks, like what what Scott talks about in his in his book, The Wedge, is really what we've been talking about for the last year. It is just the the whole idea of how, you know, you know, comfort is something that's easy to reach for, and it's a and it's a state we we'd like to be in, but ultimately when we stay in that state too long, then we get emotionally compromised and compromised by just the difficulty of the difficulties of life. And so what Scott d- did in this whole book was he t- he took himself through varied experiences, mm-hmm. I mean extreme experiences, to show essentially. Um, what what we're capable of? Yeah. And then he Scott ends the book with with quite a powerful chapter. I I, I actually was was quite emotional reading it because it felt like it felt like a spiritual experience. Surprise! <laughs> John got emotional. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so Scott like flies all the way down to the Amazon and 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 takes place in not one but three ayahuasca ceremonies mm-hmm. with a guy named Tony, who sounds like quite the fella. Yeah. So. Check his book out. Well, listen to the podcast first, yeah. and then you'll get a sense of it. But uh, the book is is a trip in itself. It's yeah. a series of incredible journeys and experiences, and uh, yeah, you'll you'll get a a little glimpse of what Scott's about from from the upcoming conversation, which was a, a fun ride. Well, and if you're thinking Scott Carney, Scott Carney, Scott Carney, how do I know that name? He literally wrote the book on Wim Hof, folks. Yeah. And uh, the book is called um, What Doesn't Kill Us, Rediscovering Our Evolutionary Strength. And uh, Andrew's actually prepared a little bit of a bio that he wants to read, either now or in a bit. (laughs) What Doesn't Kill Us, it was a New York Times bestseller. He's also written The Red Market and The Enlightenment Trap, which he explains the... um, About meditation, right? Yeah, Yeah. and and the basis behind it, which was actually a, a pretty awful experience that he was a part of mm-hmm. um and he talks about that in the episode 
he was a contributing editor at Wired, uh, an amazing a magazine that has uh, a ton of popularity. Didn't he work at Playboy at one point? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think his writing appeared in Playboy. So I don't know if he was actually... There's writing in Playboy? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He, yeah, he Asking was there. For a friend. He was there for the articles, <laughs> and he's also uh, he's been on a variety of radio and TV programs, NPR, National Geographic, TV, and he won the Payne Award for ethics in journalism for his story "Meet the Parents," which tracked an international kidnapping to adoption ring. No way. Yeah, and I think he said his first book was on organ smuggling. Yeah, and and he's also he talks about in the book in in the wedge about how he was in India in in like war zones mm-hmm. and the the one thing that was a little bit too far that he he decided maybe I shouldn't do this was there was landmines everywhere. Yeah. So yeah. He, he's a guy who's led an interesting life and uh, he's he's going to be on the Today Show. He's going to be on folks. the Today Show next. He's going. Yeah. It's the natural progression. Obstacle course. Today, Today Show. Show. What's after Oprah. that? Oprah. Oprah. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So. We're just helping him along. We are. Enjoy this, everybody. It was a a true pleasure, and uh, I think you'll get a lot from it, too. The Wedge. All right. John, are you ready? I am ready, man. I've been ready for this for a while. Yeah. this uh, This is one we've been looking forward to for some time. We've got Scott Carney on the podcast, and, uh, Recent, you're about to uh, release a book. By the time this is live, the wedge will be out in the public domain, and uh, I encourage all of you to snap it up. And you're going to find out why in a few minutes here. So, Scott, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me on again, guys. Yeah. So, Scott, I I first kind of heard of you. It must have been four or five years ago when your first book came out. What doesn't kill us? Um, I think it was just the title was like, oh, this is interesting. And something about evolutionary strength and freezing cold water and all these kind of things. And I actually downloaded that book on Audible because I'm a landscaper. And I listened to it at work um, over and over and over. And um, oftentimes it got in. Yeah, man. Yeah, I actually went through it a a few times. And oftentimes it got in the way of my work. Like people would be like, what are you doing, John? I'm just standing there, just sort of staring off into the nothingness, (laughs) contemplating like, you know, what it means to be human. (laughs) evolutionary strength uh, and rewinding stuff and then i ended up sharing it with my crew and they listened to it and it was like oh my gosh this is amazing and so like when i started this podcast um or when andrew and i sorry no it's not my I'm, podcast i'm here too John. yeah sorry <laughs> <laughs> um no but when when we got the idea for this podcast um we had like bucket list guests and you were like at the top of the list right with whim i don't know whose name was first we'll say your name's first <laughs> But like these are, yeah, I mean, for sure. It should be. Yeah, it should be. But, um, so this is, um, I'll do this whole podcast in Wim's voice. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. (laughs) But so I just, just to, for the listeners to, to kind of get caught up as well. Um, Scott has written another book. You've written, written several books actually, but another book, which was almost seems like, you know, the first phase of your journey, it seems like, which was began really 11 years ago. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, no, in 2011. Um, so yeah, oh, eight uh, years ago or something. So, not yeah, about nine years ago. Um, I started with uh, you know I met Wim uh, as I was a uh, you know I'm an investigative journalist, uh, an anthropologist, and I was had just written a big article 
about how meditation can kill you, especially if you're trying to like search for superpowers. And then I learned about Wim Hof, who was basically offering superpowers through meditation. I was like, I'm going to debug this dude. Um, <laughs> right, and, right. and uh, you know, I got a commission uh, uh, for a magazine article in Playboy, flew out to, um, to meet Wim, uh, and I was like, you know, you, you meet him and he's just this ruddy nose dude. He's wearing like a green felt pointy yeah. hat that made him look like a garden gnome. And I was like, this is going to be like the easiest story of my life. Look at this <laughs> madman. And uh, what happened is I, 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 you know, I, um, you know, I go to this little dilapidated training center in the mountains of Poland and I start doing, you know, I start, you know, trying his method because I can't just like straight up debunk someone without giving it a good, honest effort. And that good honest effort led to me basically repeating the same things that Wim could do. I was like sitting in ice water and I was warm, climbed up a mountain in, a, in my bathing suit. And I was like, oh shit, this shit works. So I guess that changed my whole life plan after that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I wrote a big article about, um, I was like the first real journalist to write about Wim. I, you know, I, everything else before that was like, hey, look at this circus freak who does, sits in ice water. And then I wrote this like, my God, this is amazing. This is life-changing um, stuff. And there's not only that, there's science behind it. Uh, and uh, ever since then, I've been doing the Wim Hof method, you know, breathing, cold exposure, water. And then I, I ended up writing, well, actually I had to finish a book about how meditation can kill you. I actually got in the book contract as I was with him. And that book's called The Enlightenment Trap. And it's true, meditation can, can do crazy things to your brain and sort of scramble it in bad ways. Um, and then at the same time I was writing that book, I was also doing the Wim Hof Method and you know submersing myself in ice water and doing these things that are really crazy to my physiology. Uh, and then that book came out, um, What Doesn't Kill Us, New York Times bestseller, you know, people really liked the message that meditation can make you awesome <laughs> because that's what <laughs> right. it can do. Uh, and, and then what the wedge is and what, the, what we're, we're talking about today is after studying with Wim for basically a decade, what do you do next? Like once you can like hang out in ice water and be awesome in it and breathe until you, you tingle and, you know, experience, you know, a, a, you know amazing sensations and, and start to be able to interact with your immune system in really cool ways. Uh, what do you do next? And, and that's what the wedge is about. I'm trying to find the fundamental principles that I learned in WIM and then apply that to everything. Hmm. Yeah. It's an incredible journey you take people through. And as I was going through that journey myself, a question kind of just popped into my head. Why? Like, why does this stimulate your curiosity so much? Why, why does it um, inspire you to put yourself in potentially dangerous or um, mm -hmm. scary or life-altering situations? It's like, what, what is the why behind um, going down this road? I mean, that's like the biggest question ever in some ways. Um, so I'll try to like take a chomp of it. I mean, essentially, you know, we're, we're giving this one shot at life, right? As far as we know, you know, barring any, you know, sort of heaven and hell stuff that I'm not currently aware of, you know, what we know about life is we're born and then at some point we're going to die. And we have this space to do whatever it is that we want in that space. And, and, you know, a lot of us have this life plan, which is, you know, you work 40 hours a week, you know, you get your educated, you get married, you have some kids, you fully fund your retirement, you pay your taxes, get some insurance, and then you die comfortably in your bed. This is like the, you know, the very, very general American life plan that actually a lot of us don't stick to. But that's like that. That's like the one that we have in our head as an ideal. And, you know, 
my my feeling is that that is um, fine. If you want to do that, that's fine. But we have this opportunity to try to expand ourselves in in crazy and and, and novel ways. Like if you only have one life and you know it's going to end on a sour note, you know, <laughs> life is a song. It ends in a minor key. Right. Then 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 what do you want to do? Why not take risks? Why not do something which is sort of big and unusual and and could even be dangerous because, you know, we've already lost the game. Like we already know it ends badly. So why not do things that put you in difficult situations? Then usually, I mean, I don't want any of those actually bad things to happen, but I do want to put myself up against something that's challenging and then overcome it and then or find that I learned something about it and then you know at the end you know of my life I've collected all of these weird and fun and and unusual experiences and and learned to and and felt things deeply and you know it's not about being on your deathbed and looking back and said oh I did well right it's about being in the moment right now and being like wow I I feel alive and that's that's why I'm doing all of these things I want to feel alive first of all Scott we completely agree with you completely but second of all, many people don't. They're like, you know what? Based on what you just said, life does kind of end terribly. So why don't we just be as comfortable as possible as long sure. as possible? And a lot of your writing is about our relationship with comfort. So maybe you can speak to that for right. a second. Well, I mean, first of all, I want to say no one needs to do what I did like or I do. Like my life is my journey and I'm on it and I'm puttering away into <laughs> yeah. my own weird side of, of life. And if somebody does like that original plan that I outlined, there's nothing wrong with it. Like if that's what you want to do, then groovy, go and do that. Like I, I don't need to live your life and you don't need to live my life. So that's fine, especially if someone feels happy, especially if someone feels healthy and they feel fulfilled, then then there's no reason that, that any of us need to do it any other person's prescriptions for life. Like that's just sort of silly. However, if you do feel like pushing boundaries, if you do want to, um, you know, you know, try a different route, then, you know, what, what I'm saying is you can, and, and here's one way you can do things, you know, here's some inspiration for how you can feel something deeply, how you can, you can use your sensations and your emotions and your experiences in novel environments and be like, Hey, that was cool. I did something really interesting. And, you know, while everything I do in this book, pushes a certain edge, like pushes you to a to a point where you're in a stress and you're trying to learn to control yourself in the stress, very little of it is going to push you over. Like I'm not saying skydive without a parachute. I'm saying get a great parachute and put a backup parachute in your parachute, but then go skydiving. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, manage your risk and look at the world and, and see, you know, where you can expand and hopefully expand healthy, you know, go out there and do something and, and not have a catastrophic accident, but also don't be afraid of the cat catastrophic accident. Like though, you know, again, we've lost, you're going to die. Like that's going to happen. So, <laughs> so it, whether it happens and you're in a comfortable bed, looking back at all your grandchildren, being like, ah, I did it. Or you smooshed your face into that haystack after you jumped out of the plane, either way, you're just as dead. Uh, and, <laughs> right. and, and I want you to, to, to say, to have some equanimity in that. And, you know, what I write about and what I found so fascinating in this journey is that that notion of cessation and death is hardwired into our nervous system. You know, we evolved over this like crazy long span of time. You know, life on earth is like 3.7, 3.8 billion years. And every single iteration from the single celled creatures all the way up through, through dinosaurs and then us um, has had to contend with death and 
And that means that everything that's been wired, every sensation, every um, uh, heartbeat, every atrial, you know, every, every, everything that alters your blood pressure and squeezes your veins or enervates your nerves, all of that ultimately is about conferring an evolutionary advantage or disadvantage. No, always, sorry, always advantage to us. Uh, and, and we're supposed to use these senses. We're supposed to use these things to navigate our world. And I would say that a lot of us, because we are so comfortable, because we have these these archaic bodies, but we're but we also have this great technology that allows us to like exist in a very narrow band of experience, um, that we're not really using all of the tools that we inherited. And so one of the things that I like to to you know that question of why are you doing this is why I can spin this in so many different directions because I don't know in some ways, <laughs> um, but also to say we have these tools, why not try them out? You know, why not see what we could do with them and see what, what tools I want to use? And, you know, there's also tools that I don't want to use. Um, there's still, even now, there's tools that I, I, like I evolved, for instance. One thing that we evolved with is, uh, is, is vasoconstriction, which means clenching the arteries in your extremities in cold environments, which I do all the time. But the other thing that, that vasoconstriction is for is if you happen to, like, lop off your arm, um, vasoconstriction will help constrict the blood vessels so you won't bleed out and die. Now, I don't mind the cold one, but I'm really not amputating <laughs> myself right now. I mean, I don't need to try everything that I've got. Um, I, you know, knowing if there is fine. That's the next book. Yeah, or maybe not book. <laughs> maybe like YouTube would be a better... Yeah. Oh, it it, yeah, it yeah. would really grasp the, <laughs> yeah. the seriousness of the situation. Yeah. I, I think so. Let's do it. <laughs> I, honestly, I wouldn't you be surprised <laughs> if somebody on YouTube has done something similar, yeah. at least. Oh, for sure. Um, and probably got a lot of views. Um, so, <laughs> Well, they got views. <laughs> yeah. Then totally worth it. <laughs> um, when, when you talk about the analogy of, the, of having a really good parachute... And, mm -hmm. and investing in the great parachute and making sure it works and testing it out. My mind wandered a little bit to the story that you start the book with about climbing Kilimanjaro shirtless right. with Wim. And mm -hmm. when, when he decided to, to go on for that last push without stopping for food, when you guys had already just been pushing to what seemed like the limits... Um, like 24 hours, we like straight more or less, you know, we actually we ended up a little rest. We had like a six hour rest, um, but basically 24 hours straight. And we were at the last stage before we sort of going up, you know, this big rocky um, boulder what, wash that we're going up. It's about four hours and we are bone tired, all exhausted. And we're and, and I'm shirtless. Right. And, and he's like, Oh, we don't need lunch. Here we go. We, you know, cause we want to, he wants to save like 15 minutes on our, whatever <laughs> so-called record, which I'm even dubious. It was a record, <laughs> but he said it was a record for like shirtless people or something like that. I'm like, I don't care. I just want to go up, you know, Mount Kilimanjaro <laughs> with you and it'd be fun. Um, he's like, no, we have to go now. We have to go now. And like, there's a mutiny in our group of 20 people. Um, where, we're, where we're like, well, you're going to get someone killed. And the, basically the only reason I follow him is because, well, I'm writing a book, so I guess I have to go do this. <laughs> and I'm like, which is the worst reason to do <laughs> right, something, incidentally. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I feel obligated. Yeah. And I'm following up the, the mountain, and he's, and he's like slipping too. He's also on his edge. You know, he's not like this superhuman who can do anything and like walk through walls and crap like that. He's got stuff there, and I see him slip because he's hungry and tired and, and all that too. And I'm like... Oh man, one, why did I follow this madman <laughs> this mountain? And then and then two, I also realized that 
I, I can start to feel that I, I, I'm on that edge between where it's too much and where I can handle it. And I realize that, that if I really want to do this, I need to um, connect with the environment. I need to connect with those sensations of, you know, cold on my skin. You know, we're having like um, winds buffeting us and it drops the temperature to like negative 30 and I'm shirtless and, mm-hmm. and like I have to be present and I have to like sort of accept that stimulus and not fight it to make it to the mountain. And I have this sort of sensation of oneness with the mountain. Well, um, and you is- also said, Scott, you felt warm. It's like, mm-hmm. did he say warm? Like I read that over a couple times. I was like, I think he said warm. <laughs> warm. So it's more like warmer than I should have been. I think it's the, is it, you feel <laughs> right. resilient. Like you feel, right. you sort of feel like you're wearing a wetsuit in a way Yeah. Um, right. where, where, you know, you, you have a wetsuit and you jump into the Arctic water. You still feel the cold, but you're also like, I, I'm like sort of it, 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 like. You're not overwhelmed by it. You're not even, yeah, not overwhelmed. Like you feel sort of impervious and protected against it, I guess, is the way, way to do it. Right. And, um, and, and, you know, you're like, I can do this. And, uh, and then you, you get up to the top. And there are things you can do where you do really feel quite warm. Um, I will say at the end of the day, I was very cold, right? At the, like when I'd come back down the mountain, uh, back to that, that sort of hut where we had, we had that mutiny. That's where we spent the night. I was definitely cold. But I'd also been doing something crazy hard right on the edge of my limits. So I don't view that as a failure either. (laughs) Well, and I I honestly think that's the most amazing and accessible thing about your work is you showed what the average human can be. Because you even said, I'm just an average human just like you and me. Like I'm not an elite athlete or a mountaineer. And and Mm -hmm. it's like it would even be oppressive for a mountaineer to walk up without right. in his bathing suit. But you're a normal guy, an investigative journalist um, who was able to do this. And that's why Wim, I think, is still relevant is because it's not just that Wim's a superhero. Is there's, a, there's that superhero right. in all of us that, right. you know, with the wedge um, specifically, we can, we can begin to experience what that, what that feels like. Exactly, exactly. And it really ultimately comes down to... Um, focusing on your sensations in a stressful environment. It doesn't really matter what the stress is. You know, this can be cold. This can be heat. This can be ecstasy. This can be joy. This can be pain. Mm-hmm. Like any of those things, those those create sensations that you physically feel in your body. They're not just mental abstractions. And when you have that tension between that stimulus outside world, whatever it is, and response, your body's reaction and those sensations to it, you have this opportunity to intervene. You know, you could say you you separate stimulus from response. And this is where this concept, this is what the word the wedge sort of comes from in my mind. You have stimulus and response, and then you're inserting something between that space to to widen that gap or in some cases you're also removing the wedge so that you mm-hmm. shorten that gap between stimulus and response where you don't have to consciously think about it, it just sort of happens and 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 so what we're doing is we're trying to to modulate experiences in any sort of um, stress response and when when you do that enough um you you learn that you have uh um choice in just about any situation right mm-hmm. it doesn't mean you have the opportunity to win at everything but you have choice in how to navigate that path and mm-hmm. that's that's really where this power comes from and i i did not invent the idea of like intervening in your body like people right. have been doing this since the yogis right and you know three thousand years ago they people have been writing about it. and so probably like 
thousands and thousands of years prior to that, people were thinking about this, and all the way up through modern techniques and you know martial arts and yoga and you know all 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 sorts of like present day techniques are all using these concepts. I'm just sort of giving it a vocabulary and I think a different package um, than you know different ways to conceptualize how to do this. No, stuff. absolutely. So one thing that we we see from entrepreneurs often is that they see a a problem that exists for them in their own world and then they kind of go out and and try to solve it um through creating a business and um and i'm curious if if the same thing can apply to authors um and especially the style of writing that you do uh investigative really just following your curiosity and and trying to solve problems um and and also it kind of uh relates to the hero's journey a little bit which is a framework that Mm -hmm. we often relate back to was sure. there was there a time in your life that that really um, helped inspire you to start going down this road of of pushing your own limits or, or recreating your limits? Um, was there a dark night of the soul where where you felt like you just needed to kind of jumpstart your own pathology or uh, or um, understand yourself better? Um, I, I know I'm kind of packing a few different uh, images into the question, but sure, uh, sure. Th- does that relate? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple starting points for this, for my life's journey and your life's journey and everyone's life's journey. Um, but I think you, you mentioned Dark Knight of the Soul, so I'm going to run with that. Uh, so in 2006 um, uh, was the the darkest point in my entire life uh, where I was a, a, a anthropologist who had just sort of like left the anthropology world. Uh, I got to the PhD and I dropped out and I was leading in a broad program throughout North India. Um, so I was sort of the, the, the teacher for these, mm, how many students? It was like 15, 12, 15 students who are all like 18 to 22 years old. I was 27. And we uh, had went to this um Buddhist monastery. You know, we we're going. We we're going to all of like the religious holy sites. And I have, um, incidentally, a great deal of experience in India. I speak Hindi. I w- I've been a correspondent there. I've been studying India since like I was 19 years old um, for various reasons. Not necessarily the religious traditions, but like the, the organized urban chaos. Um, my first book was about organ trafficking. Like I have this whole weird backstory. But anyway, at this point, I was. Um, in uh, leading this 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 program around religious sites in North India, I went to a place called Bodhgaya, which is where uh, the Buddha attained enlightenment about 2,800 years ago. And we're doing this 10-day silent meditation retreat in the Tibetan tradition. Uh, and uh, you know, in this meditation retreat, we're ta- thinking about enlightenment and bliss and nirvana we're contemplating our own deaths and being coming okay with it you know it's like you know you this buddhist stuff uh and we're doing this for 10 days and we're not talking this is very important we're not talking we're not sharing these experiences we're just going deep inside and at this point i'm not the teacher of that program that's like a tibetan nun uh i'm just a sort of a student amongst my students at the end of the retreat i have a student named emily and she is the best smartest brightest student in the whole um, gang, you know, she's been studying yoga at home for for years, uh, and at the, on the last di- night of the retreat, she spends the night writing in her journal. She goes up to the top of the retreat center, about three stories high, ties a scarf around her head, jumps off, kills herself, um, hitting her head uh, probably about five feet from where I'm sleeping. Hmm. 
I go outside and I'm the guy who's suddenly responsible for this. I'm the only person who speaks Hindi um, in, in our group and I'm suddenly liaison. I mean, we're, you know, we, we go through the CPR stuff. Her, her corpse is armed. We're talking to her, her family. I mean, it is a horrible, horrible experience. But in this journey, I also take her notebook and, I, and, and I'm trying to see what her last words are. What, is she, what was she thinking about? And she said, I am a bodhisattva. All I need to do is leave my body to attain the next level. And a bodhisattva means I'm an enlightened Tibetan angel, essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she had taken these ideas of bliss and beauty and wonder and all of these good things. And then she had somehow in her mind decided that uh, once you embrace death, you should just go for it and then you're going to be enlightened. And, and so my life has basically revolved around this event because I've wanted to understand how you can take something so amazing, right? So pure and beautiful as something as enlightenment and then have this terrible experience um, mm-hmm. that comes out of it. What is that madness that comes out of enlightenment and the, the spiritual journey? And this is why I'm so, so skeptical of Wim Hof, right? Mm-hmm. So skeptical of this, this idea of pursuing superpowers or things that are greater than yourself. Because if you meditate, time moves up, it slows down. You have these different sensations in a meditative experience. And a lot of people think they're special. And so I have this book called The Enlightenment Trap, and it's all about that side of this journey. Mm. Um, but this one experience is powerful because she had these vi- these very visceral ideas of like what where she was going to next. And you know, I did spend some time, you know, walking around different lamas and and gurus around North India. I was like, well, and uh, the question was, well, was she enlightened? Like, was she a bodhisattva? Like, I don't know. Like, you know, I can't answer that question. And they gave me various answers to that. And generally, it was no, she wasn't. But it doesn't mean that the, that movement that we have in us to seek something greater than ourselves isn't valuable even if there's this horrible thing so i see see two things existing in tension at all at, at all times in my life my spiritual practice your spiritual practice and I, i'm trying to like reconcile these things and that is my life's journey i don't think that's what you're expecting when you ask that question no that that's a beautiful answer um, thanks for <laughs> thanks for sharing that scott um so was there a, was there a moment when you realized that whim and all his methods were were not crazy. Was it just one moment, or was it just over time when, when you when you engage, then you're like, okay, okay, this is real. Or was there like a moment where you're like, everything's changed? Yeah, it was almost instantaneous, actually, with Wim. Um, because I mean, not not meeting him off the airport. Because once we start doing his practices, um, you know, the Wim Hof method is essentially two things. It's 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 hyperventilation and then exhaling and then holding your breath and learning you can hold your breath for a really long period of time. Mm-hmm. That's half the method. The other half of the method is putting yourself in extremely cold environments, think an ice bath, think standing in the snow, something like that, and then relaxing in a very stressful environment. Right. And, and uh, those two things you learn almost instantaneously because you're the, the, when you're standing in the snow, that's firing every nerve impulse from the outside of your body in. And you, you know, you feel that sensation of clenching up, like just think right now about what it would feel like to jump into an ice bath. And you're probably gonna have a little tension in your back and your shoulders. Like Mm -hmm. if you just try to put yourself in that mental space, um, now relax into that. And now you're all suddenly controlling yourself. And, And with Wim, you know, the first time you put your, your feet in the snow, it hurts and it's horrible. No one wants to do it. And then, but you're trying to relax. And the second time you do it, it hurts and it's horrible and you don't want to do it, but you're in there twice as long before that that actually takes effect. So uh, over the course of a week, I was like, wow, this really, really does work. Um, you know, I can sit in this cold environment and it's really, really not 
that bad. I can just look at that ice water and think that is a sensation and it's my choice on how to, how to respond to it. So, um, you know, very, very quickly. Um, and also you, you master it very quickly. It's really interesting. There's this Tibetan um, Buddhist meditation called Jyotumo, where you maybe, maybe you've heard of this. It's like monks in the Himalayan mountains sit in snow for really long periods of time and they melt all the snow around them. Oh, wow. uh, and uh, it, it sounds like a, a superhero uh, a move, right? And in the, in the Indic tradition, it's called a siddhi, which means like miracle. Um, and it's like a minor siddhi that you're able to learn. And that's what Wim is doing too. It's a, it's a minor sort of miracle. So when I heard about this, I was like, that's crazy and that's not true. <laughs> that's, <laughs> yeah. why, that's why I was debunking him because it was like a minor siddhi. Yeah. I was like, you can't do that. Um, and what's really interesting about the Tibetan um, tradition is that it takes about 20 years to master. And the way you do it is you think about certain images in your mind um, and then you, you, you alter those images and you inhabit those images. And it's really brain first. And then from your brain, you change the way your physiology works. Right. Um, and it's amazing and it does work. It's been scientifically proven it works. Um, there's videos, you can just go watch it on YouTube right now if you want it. it, it works, but it takes 20 years to get really, really good at it. With the Wim Hof method, it's the exact opposite. It's he dumps you in ice water, says, control yourself. <laughs> and and yeah. you're like, okay, I'm going to go do it because I don't want to die. <laughs> and, yeah. Yeah. and so you control yourself. And instead of taking 20 years, because you're going from the outside in, sort of the inside out, you learn this in like five minutes. Mm. Um, it's super, super quick. And um, so those are two very comparative like methods you can do all of the things i'm talking about in the wedge probably from your brain first it's going to be a lot harder but if we throw you into a stressful environment and you have certain sensations that now you can suddenly learn how to modulate those two things and that's really the beauty of the wim hof method and then everything i'm talking about in, in the wedge after that yeah and i think we'll get into a couple of the specifics of uh, i guess a couple of specific wedges um shortly here mm -hmm because there's some that are really fun and fascinating and did any of the experience that you yourself went through uh give you surprise in in your own ability to handle the the intensity of them um oh man <laughs> yeah every single one like, you know there there's not one thing that i've got i, I went in well i guess the uh, there's one of them where i'm eating potatoes yeah. uh, which is i'm trying to look at sensations that I wasn't scared that i couldn't eat just potatoes for a long time <laughs> um it was but but in almost all of these i'm putting myself up against things that um uh, to some degree or another i'm nervous about right and and you know there's one practice that i do still very regularly where I throw kettlebells between me and a partner. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, when I first heard about this practice, I thought it was lame and sort of douchey, like two, you know, <laughs> jacked up dudes throwing a kettlebell against each other. That, that sounded horrible to me. Um, and, but I tried it. And what I learned is that it's not about just looking awesome on Instagram with your big muscles and you're throwing your kettlebell <laughs> with a dude. It's really about learning trust with another person because a kettlebell, which is this like, you know, I throw either a 25 or a 50 pound weight with another person. Um, it's about connection with another uh, another man. So if I'm standing against you, right? I'm holding a, a piece of iron. That's that's a, a adversarial thing, right? You know, yeah. hist historically and evolutionarily, when this occurs, it's about I'm going to hit you with this metal and you're going to get hurt. And in your mind, when you think you're going to throw a kettlebell, that's also what you're thinking. I'm going to get hurt. It's going to land on my foot. I'm going to break my foot, which is a real danger. It's like 
you know, I'm not going to tell you, I'm not going to bullshit you. You can fucking break your foot in this, this technique. Um, and, and that's the beauty in a way, because when I throw you the kettlebell, it flips through there, you catch it, and then you throw it back. It's not about winning. It's not about me doing better than you. It's about the two of us cooperating, focusing on each other. And the guy who taught it to me, a guy named Michael Castro Giovanni, is like, when you throw the kettlebell, you throw it with love. You, you, you love this other person. You're trying to connect with this person in the presence of a threat. Like, how do you find that tension between danger, breaking foot, and love for another person? It, it actually becomes this very, it becomes a dance, it becomes a spiritual practice, and, and it puts you in what they call a flow state. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and I find this just such a beautiful practice uh, mm -hmm. that I, I, I still do it all the time. Like, when I want to, like, meet, meet, when I'm meeting another, for, a new friend in Denver, for instance, like a guy, I'm like, one of the first things I do is like, let's throw a kettlebell. And they're like, either like that's douchey or first we're like that's awesome and it's neither of those things it's just something about connection with another person and i found this to be um one of the most accessible practices in in the book because it's something that just you can do you probably have a kettlebell right and 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 it is a threat and then when you connect with another person while doing it um it, it, it becomes about so, so much more than throwing the kettlebell. Well, and Scott, you know, you, you use the word threat many times. And I think one of the impetuses behind the whole book is the whole idea of our emotions and our physiology is a threat to us often, which is why we want to be mm -hmm. comfortable. Uh, you said at one mm -hmm. point, you know, we're conditioned to think that emotions are something that just happened to us. You know, it's like right. all of a sudden I feel anxious or angry or, or whatever mm -hmm. it is. And we don't know why. And then we just go down that path and just, be anxious right. and angry. But part of the idea of the wedge is we can create a way to like, you know, either fact check those or stop those things. And, and right. perhaps, perhaps we could talk a little bit about that is how did you begin to learn those truths in this journey? Yeah. I mean, you know, you have to think about what, ang like, so I come from an evolutionary perspective on a lot of this stuff. Like what is anxiety? And I've been thinking about this even after writing the book. I'm like, how do I best describe anxiety? Because anxiety is not necessarily bad. It's this feeling of heightened agitation. It's your sympathetic nervous system, which is your fight or flight responses, which means adrenaline and cortisol and so other related hormones that get you ready to, to take certain actions. Now, Anxiety, we usually think about it as like a bad thing. Like I'm feeling anxious, I don't wanna be here. But let's put you back in time a little bit and let's say you set up your little cave dwelling, right? Yeah. You're, you're, you know, 30,000 yeah. years ago, or you, you set up your cave dwelling and your neighbor is a bear. Right. That bear, <laughs> who, who, maybe he's not even thinking about it. Maybe this bear is hibernating, it's not really a big deal, but you feel anxious about the bear eating your children, right? Yeah, yeah. Anxiety is the impetus for you to, to remove yourself from the bear's presence. Uh, maybe you hunt the bear, maybe you just get the fuck out of the bear's way. But anxiety was useful, right? It was a useful thing to decide, make a decision to, to influence your actions about the bear. And there's a, there's a sensation that you feel, and then there's the impetus you have to react to that sensation. Mm -hmm. It just so happens that in the modern world, we're not worried about bears as much anymore. We're thinking about 401ks, we're thinking about our taxes, we're thinking about these other things, but we're still engaging those same sympathetic nervous system responses. When, when oftentimes we don't, you know, when the bear is like charging at you, 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 you release adrenaline to either run away from the bear or fight the bear. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't have to fight bears anymore. Like we, we want, we, we, there's no really no reason to have those responses in our in our world, except we still have our cavemen bodies and we're still firing 
those things. Um, now I've completely lost the thread of your original question. <laughs> no, so this is good. It, it's all about um, the idea that these emotions and feelings happen to us and we have no control over them. And so oh. the idea of the wedge is, is, is kind of gaining back that control perhaps or, or that you know more positive sure. relationship with it. Yeah. And so the, the other things I'm looking at in the, in the body is how these sensations get formed and what is an emotion in the first place. And there's this one really powerful concept in the book that I, that I got from speaking with some neuroscientists um, at Stanford and at Wayne State University, um, which is what we call a neural symbol. Like when you feel anything in the world, wherever you are, um, uh, you're essentially living in the past. And this is because of the way you're physically wired. Now, I wanted to use the, the, the example of ice water, but this really just applies to everything. But ice water, we can all sort of visualize what you might feel when you jump into ice water. Um, the very, you're a child. You've never felt cold in your conscious life um, before. And, 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 and then you, you dunk yourself in ice water. And what is the physical process that occurs. Well, the, the, the first thing that happens is it touches your peripheral nervous system, these external you know, nerves on your skin, essentially. And then that transmits this signal of intense cold through your wires up into the lowest, lowest areas of your brain, where this is the limbic system. This is brain stem lizard brain stuff. Mm -hmm. This happens very quickly, but we're just dissecting it for you. Now, the brain stem, uh, the, the, I like to think of the limbic system as like a library. And I imagine that there's a librarian sitting in this library um, trying to figure out what's going on in the world. And, and this sensation comes in the librarian, takes this, this sensation, and what is in that sensation is, is like the, the physical feelings, but also a volume knob of how like powerful that sensation. So like it's strong, but what is it, she says, or he says, and, and looks at it as, and, and, and she looks at her catalog and, and tries to see if she's ever felt the sensation before. And it so happens it's the first time you've been in ice water, so there's no sensation here for ice water. So what she does is she kicks it up to the paralimbic system, uh, you know, a centimeter away from where she just first got the signal. And the paralimbic system is like a book cataloger. And it takes the, the, the sensation and says, well, here's this new sensation. I will say that this sensation is the current feeling, emotional feeling that you're having right now which is unmitigated terror and horror um, <laughs> because <laughs> right. you're in ice water. Yeah. Um, and, and it takes this unmitigated terror and horror, puts it onto that sensation of ice water, kicks it down to the librarian, and she's like, cool, here's this, here's what ice water means. Puts it in the ice section of your brain <laughs> and it kicks off to the into the future. Now, this process is super important to, to understand because the next time you jump into ice water, that signal comes in there through your peripheral nerves, the librarian, checks her shelves and finds the old volume of ice water, opens it up and says, oh, unmitigated terror. I don't need to kick it up to the paralympic system. And that now, because of this, you're, all, you you're experiencing that previous emotion. Mm -hmm. Now, every sensation, this is the bits and bites of the software of your body. Uh, this is how you work so that every sensation you experience, doesn't matter what it is, what you just took a, a sip of tea, I could see you on the video, that T sensation is, mm -hmm. is formed out of neural symbols from before. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and 
basically everything you experience, if you think about the brain as just this, this lumpy bit of flesh floating in your skull, it, it can only get information through this system so that everything you experience from like the most basic things like ice water responses all the way to up to complex thought uh, in the way that ones and zeros form computer programs, it's these neural symbols form human cognition. Uh, and so what we're doing with the wedge is we are finding ways to alter those neural symbols or more accurately, create new neural symbols so that mm. the next time you feel ice water, I'm going to actually put a, consciously put in a new emotion into that neural symbol to change the way I experience the world in the future. And that's that's the, the sort of long way to answer your question, what we're doing here. No, it's, I'm so glad you touched on the limbic system. Yeah, yeah I, I as soon as I came across the concept of neural symbols in this book, it immediately was a light bulb going off and it just helps explain the, the way we are and it, it confirms both the idea that people don't change and also that people can change. It's just hard to do because y mm -hmm. it, it proves that that we have this innate possibility. We just actually have to reprogram our brains to do so. And uh, a, a big part of the book I read a, a few days ago while I was on a little kayak camping trip by myself. So I had a lot of time just to kind of think and digest. Nice. And when I came across this idea, um, I, I had spent some time walking down the beach across logs. And, and I'm just, I just kind of wanted to illustrate like how the concept really made sense for myself. Because I think for everybody else listening out there, there's something that could be easily applied. So basically, I was walking across these logs, going from like one log, jumping on to another log and going up high and then going on, on logs that were tipping back and forth and just having such a great time, just really enjoying it, being in the moment. And mm -hmm. I applied the idea of neural symbols and thought, like, this is actually probably a, a dangerous activity. I could fall <laughs> off. I could break my ankle. I'm by myself on this tiny little island. But that thought never oh, yeah. went through my through my mind. I could, it, the, the experience could have been like, why am I bothering to do this? It's taking me longer. I could just be walking on the beach. But then I thought back, this is something I did as a child mm -hmm. with my family. Mm -hmm. So I'm yeah. just it, enjoying the adventure. It's just, it's pleasurable. It's, um, it, mm -hmm. it has a deep connection. And also there was like a little bit of competitiveness because I would always be doing it, you know, against my older brother and trying to do it faster than him. Right. And so even mm -hmm. now I'm trying to go quickly across the logs and, and it just really, um, you know, touched a, struck a chord with, uh, mm -hmm. with, how real the the whole concept is and and again for for other people listening when whenever we're going through the motions really we have habits that are just the way we operate there's um and and then there's a feeling attached to that especially that that's just um that's just neural symbols doing their thing yeah it's your brain it's your it's your wiring your brain and what's really interesting about the way you explain that is that because you are introspective about that moment right you could have just been jumping across the man's like, and logs and big this is fun which would be fine i'm having a good time on these logs but then you thought about it and you actually you you brought up the a, a, a memory of your brother and then you've made this you're you're still generating new neural symbols even though you have old ones like everything you do you're just making a bigger library right so now you're actually consciously creating a new neural symbol around um not only the you're connecting that time when you and your brother were doing the logs to the present moment and then forming the things in the future you you actually strengthened your relationship with your brother weirdly hmm. in that moment because you were doing this at that time and this is you know this is what, what all that those bits and bites you're just adding complexity and now 
you can never get rid of a neural symbol, right? Those neural, these are things are locked there, but you can make a more expansive library. So though, so now it's more complex. So now you can pull off more specific volumes uh, as your as your future goes. Forward. You know, Scott, so, the, the more I read about the brain and understand the brain, the more I kind of think that the brain's kind of lazy. You know, it's just like, <laughs> eh, it's probably that, you know, that's what it was last <laughs> time. Just let it through. And that's how habits work too. You know, we read Charles, you know, Dubeg's book about habits. It's just like, you know, we just go down the same trail every time. Like, it's just like the brain's mm -hmm. just like, oh, that's what we did last time. And it's, uh, is that because it's wanting to conserve energy? Is it, is it, uh, I wonder why that, why it, it's set up well, that it, way. It, it works, right? Yeah. Last time worked. And so right. why should we, why should we vary off that path? Uh, you know, the, the, the brain is absolutely lazy, but it's also really dynamic, right? It allows mm. us to want, you know, we want to change our, 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 you know, you have that, you have this thing you're saying, it's really lazy. It doesn't want to change, but yet you also have this innervation in you to change. Yeah, so no, it's, it's a yeah. tension between these two things. Right, and yeah. that's the beauty. Like that is the beauty of being alive. Like that's the meaning of life to be like, mm -hmm. I have things, I have a habit, but I'm not a machine. I can decide to have a different experience. And, and I think that, to, that, that that's the beauty of being a human, but to some degree, probably just about every living thing has some element of choosing a response. Um, this reminds me of the very... show. Yeah. Westworld. Have you seen Westworld, Scott? I have. And I, oh my and, you God. know, honestly, I don't under, I've watched the, I watched a plot summary of Westworld last night and I'm like, Oh, I don't get this show at all. <laughs> <laughs> but they deal with these kind of things all the time. Like it reminds me of that show. It's, it's crazy. Anyways. What I'm also reminded of is um, an idea or kind of an experimentation game that um, I believe it was James Altucher, who has an awesome podcast and, and huge blog. Um, he either came up with or, or riffed on where you do, um, it's for creativity and you do thought experiments and, and you, um, you look at a scenario and you, or an idea and then you just practice going through in your brain other options of different ideas mm. that are related to the same concept or different ways to react to the same scenario just to, mm -hmm. to practice um, and, and really stimulate the, the idea of creativity and, and probably um, touch on those neural symbols as well. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. So you talked about something called the nocebo effect. <laughs> Oh, yeah, <laughs> in your <right>. book, <laughs> we've all heard of the placebo effect and its power and and how, in fact, the placebo effect is even often more effective than even like conventional medicine and stuff like that. And mm -hmm. that's fascinating. But the idea of the nocebo effect where we can actually create like serious symptoms in our body just by belief alone, essentially, is right. what you say. Do, do you want to deal with that a little bit and maybe it's re relevance to our everyday life? <laughs> um. So the way I begin the the that chapter in the book is is that this guy it's from a uh, article in General Practice Psychiatry I think you'll have to look at this I may have gotten the journal's name wrong but it's uh essential it's a famous case of this guy named Mr A who walks into a hospital in I think it's Charleston but it's somewhere in the sort of the south uh, southeast of America he walks in and his like blood pressure is is uh, really low and he's like oh I, I, nurse I, I took all my pills and then he like faints right in front of her right and yeah. she's like oh shit this is bad took all of my, his pills right and and so then he has the pill bottle right in front of him and and so she run, rushes him into the er and they take all those vitals and shit looks bad 
Um, and and so the nurse is like, okay, I'm gonna go call. Uh, uh, there's there's no name of this drug on this bottle, but there's a phone number, and she calls it up, and the guy was on a in a clinical trial for a uh, I think it was a, some sort of psychiatric drug. Uh, and, and she's like, well, what is this drug? We have to go save this man's life. Cause he's dying right now on that bed. Yeah. And, 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 and the, 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 you know, hospital tech says, oh my God, yeah, he's in our clinical trial. And they, they run him through the, 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 um, you know, the file searcher thing. Right. And, and they say, oh yeah, he's here, but it doesn't make any sense because he's on the placebo group. Those were sugar pills. <laughs> <laughs> and she goes, and she goes out to him. He's like, um, guy just took a, and she tells him. You're on the in the placebo. You're in the control, and 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 he's like, I am, and then he gets all better. Right? <laughs> right, right. He's like, he's like, probably a little embarrassed or whatever. <laughs> Sorry, I was almost dying. Um, but it, but it's it's a it's a fascinating thing because in one way you can say it was all in his head, right? Yeah. He freaked him. Yeah, you know, for wh- whatever reason, whether it was suicide or you know, it, we didn't really go too much into the reason for why he took the pills, but he did take the pills thinking that it would do something powerful to him and then there were real physiological things that changed that were measurable and that were possibly on the way to fatal uh, and then realizing that he was on the police it sort of like all reverts what this shows is the power of the mind yeah. in general and we and when we look at at the placebo effect which is the beneficial mm-hmm. nocebo effect i guess um as you said for m- for when we when we look at a medicine, you take a medicine. The way we we test these medicines in in, in the modern medical paradigm is we 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 give you a, like a drug for pain, and then we say half the people will get sugar pills and half the people will get our active drug for pain, and then we'll rate how their pain um, decreases. And very very frequently, the 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 placebos perform like one or two percent less effectively than the active drug and if it is like that then we're like hey the active drug works everyone forget that brain (laughs) body stuff and and because we have a two percent increase but if it was like a 30 percent benefit in pain we're still talking 28 percent was the placebo effect yeah and and this is one of the concepts i really want to i do dig into in the book is that well, why don't we create some better placebos, which is not to say we should abandon Western medicine. This is not the symbol, big T on the top of this. Do not yeah. abandon Western medicine, but acknowledge that the healing power of the body is a large part of, of, of what we do in modern medicine. Like, for instance, my father currently is in the um, ICU uh, in a hospital in, uh, on the East Coast right now. And he had a very serious infection uh, that that was incurred with the life-saving antibiotics, which which were Western medicine, where it had a real mechanical effect for killing the thing that was killing him. But then his body, he's still in the hospital now, even though the infection is gone. And what we're watching is literally his body healing itself. And all of that is happening in the Western intervention is nursing care to sort of let his body heal itself. So even Western medicine depends on what would should probably be called the placebo effect, the healing power of just fixing yourself. Uh, and, and, and how do we accentuate this? How, how can we use things like sensations and the idea of fixing yourself in irresponsible ways to make yourself better? And I, I think that the tension here is with what is responsible and what is not, because there's a lot of flim flam out of there that can make you not seek treatment for something that is useful. For instance, if you had an infection, it's very, very difficult to think away a bacterial infection, like take a freaking antibiotic, right? (laughs) 
However, for things that are like anxiety, things that are chronic conditions that Western medicine is very poor at fixing, um, then the, here's where we should be using the placebo effect. Here's where we should be trying to, to use things, trying to accentuate our, our body's ability to heal itself. So I see like a, a combining of Western medicine and whatever this, you know, possibly flim flam, possibly not <laughs> stuff and how, how we can sort of bring those together in a way that is truly beneficial. And, and incidentally, I was talking with a guy um, who's a cardiologist at, uh, in, in the UK recently, um, who literally like your heart is clogged and he tries to fix your heart, right? So he's going in there and like plumbing right. and, and trying to fix clogs, which is like a real effect. And he says he always tries to accentuate the placebo effect when he does his, his, his surgeries He'll, before the, 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 the patient um, goes into surgery he shows a picture of the blocked heart and like with the, the the clogged up artery and he says here it is right now and then he does his his work and he cleans out his, and afterwards he's like, and here it is now think of how much better this is for you and he says that when he d shows people the before and after on this on this cardiac surgery the people who've seen the before and after do markedly better on recovery mm -hmm. um and it's because he's incorporating their own um um, body and their own their own mind into the healing process absolutely and it also begs the question like how many of us are running around like mr a who yeah. we're, we we took all the sugar pills and we're having a major yep. freak out like what what other sugar pills are oh, out man. there that that we're having a crazy reaction to and we're and overreacting and really yeah. we have the complete um way out i mean we are the way out we and we are right responsible for for getting in that situation this is the problem with the wellness industry in in america even though my book i guess large you know you could call it a book that's in the wellness industry there's a big problem in the wellness industry is like you know there's chemicals that are killing you right now glyophosphate and um you know parabens and all the you know <laughs> wheat gluten and, and and there's a boogeyman for every symptom that's out there when in reality that stuff may be there, right? That stuff even could have bad effects on you, but you're not going to directly sense them usually. And while certainly arsenic is not good for you and we should eliminate arsenic from your diet, um, when you just fill your, your, your cognitive world with boogeymen, you will have a nocebo effect to that. There's yeah. almost no doubt. If you just see everything as a threat, um, instead of like being like, well, I live in this world and there are threats in this world, but I'm going to live my best life no matter what. That's a you're going to have a very different physiological response to that. And, you know, you could call this the power of positive thinking, which sounds sort of light and lame, but it's also true. Right? It's also like you do to some degree create the reality in which your body responds to. Um, and we just need to, 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 to put that in into a barrier a barrier we have to put a limit to that it's like you can't get superpowers you're not gonna like resist bullets i can't be like i think that bullet will not hurt me and shoot yourself because you're gonna get shot by the fucking bullet <laughs> but you can affect you the way um sort of this anxiety and the, the fear of the unknown hurts you scott what would it look like if we, if we applied the wedge to the coronavirus oh yeah you saw my video didn't you no i didn't <laughs> but i'm not surprised you made one did you do something on that Tell yeah, us. I did. I did. A, I did a video uh, on on the coronavirus and 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 oh, cool. uh, the well, Hoff method in specific. Uh, I mean, essentially, the 
you know, I'm not a doctor, right? I, you know, and, and when we get into like very specific medical things, I, I would suggest, you know, listen to a medical podcast. There are some great ones out there with actual doctors who yeah, yeah. know what they're talking about more than me. Um, but I will say that, that with the Wim Hof method in particular, uh, it's been shown in a clinical setting that he was able to um, turn off an autoimmune response, which is um, basically uh, autoimmune is when your immune system attacks itself. This is arthritis. This is uh, Crohn's disease. This is like tons of illnesses that are that are chronic and that are not very well dealt with by the Western medical world. And you now, actually had one as a when you were younger, didn't you? I read that somewhere. Yeah, I still. I, yeah, I, I, I had I've had them since I were I was. Uh, like one years old, I would get canker sores, which are like really big mouth ulcers. Okay. Uh, and I, I would try everything to them. For me, they were worse than most people. I would get like dime sized canker sores. And I would get them like once, at least once a month and they would last a week and they would suck and they were horrible. Um, I tried everything I could to get rid of them. And then I was doing this Wim Hof story and, and totally incidentally, not thinking about my canker sore situation at all. I never got them again after doing the Wim Hof method. Wow. Uh, and um, which has been amazing for me and, and the clinical stuff around whim and you should just read the book because it's, it's a little complex to talk about uh, in full, but essentially it showed that he was able to turn off in a lab his response to endotoxin, which is a, a heat killed bacteria, which should have given him a high fever and all these like what we call a primary immune response. Uh, he was able to, to resist that um, in an immunology lab and, they, and, and it showed that it was the first time that not only he, but he could teach people to do this 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 thing. Now, when we talk about the coronavirus, that is a, um, a a virus that enters your body, gives you a sort of a dry cough, um, and and most people who are young and healthy, under sixty, and, and no cardiac problems or something like that, are are going to be more or less fine. It's people who have more serious illnesses uh, and underlying conditions that are in more trouble. But with corona in particular, what it does is creates a, what they call a cytokine storm, which is basically when the, the, the virus enters the lungs, um, it explodes and your immune system is like, oh shit, I got to go fix you. <laughs> and it, it deploys every immune response it can in the, again, the primary immune system. Uh, and it, uh, it, it essentially, it's not the virus that kills you, it's your immune response that kills you. Mm. And that's super, that's super important with coronavirus and the Wim Hof method, because if the Wim Hof method has been shown to be able to stunt the primary immune response, there is reason to believe that, that it, it would also stunt uh, the, uh, the, the, the dangers of the coronavirus, you know, their body's response to the coronavirus. Now, mm -hmm. have I tested this in a lab setting? I have not wash your hands, do all the stuff that <laughs> yeah. the medical ex experts are telling you. Do yeah. not like just listen to what I'm saying to, to, uh, you know, be better later. But if you do happen to get it, or it's a really good idea to practice this stuff, because why not? Right? It's, you know, the, the Wim Hof method seems reasonable. Yeah. I know it, it has made me healthier, made me more resilient to germs. Um, and since it's also a lung issue, the Wim Hof method is basically strengthening your ability to breathe since it's a lot of breath work that can't hurt no uh, that's my that's my that's my short answer to coronavirus <laughs> yeah no thanks stuff. for touching on that yeah yeah no what i'm hearing there is uh still wash your hands but but also as as wim would say breathe motherfuckers <laughs> yeah. yeah right <laughs> yeah, exactly exactly <laughs> awesome 
Well, I mean, we've already hit an hour and there's, we probably want to touch on maybe a couple more things. Well, we want to touch on hundreds sure. of more things, but we're, we're conscious of your time. So. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've got yeah, one. Let's go for it. Go on. Cool. Um, one that I wanted to ask is in terms of all the wedges and, and we've read them, but we haven't gone over them all in this conversation yet, but we've got the kettlebell tossing we've got the, the potato hack. There's the, uh, the sauna exposure, cold exposure, breathing, um the, ayahuasca the tank the sensory de- <laughs> deprivation tank yeah yeah uh the couple therapy with mdma um which of those would you prescribe for for john and i as a as our first <laughs> our first wedge yeah let's hear it how's your relationship yeah you know my my wife and she doesn't do this often but she said oh you're, you're having this guy on okay i'm really interested in that mdma marital therapy she's like yeah. you have to ask him because you say in the book that like a really good two-hour session could be like eight months worth of therapy yeah. and she's mm-hmm. like okay like you need to ask not, not like we're angie and i are on the rocks right now <laughs> like we're doing fine right but she did say um, um ask him if it's still working like how long did it work yeah. after that session? So maybe speak to that. Sure. So the most, so I want to just point out that my wife is the real hero of this book. There is no doubt she has been with me through almost all of the things I do in the book, minus the ayahuasca at the end. Um, but we, you know, she's thrown kettlebells with me. We've gone float tanks. We've done saunas. And we did this MDMA couples therapy um, with two psychiatrists. Um, uh, what were they? They were family licensed couples therapists. Uh, and they had never, um, they actually had done MDMA before in like their youth sort of like party, whatever, but they'd never done it in a clinical setting. And I wanted to bring them here to, to witness and sort of guide us through what it would be like to be on MDMA. Now, why would I do this? And why would I do this in this book? Well, when I talk about the wedge, right, remember these, this neural symbol, right? Everything you have experienced before um, is, is, is wired. And you're always living in the past. It's about your current emotional state. So in couples therapy, here's the theory. What if you intervene in that sensory pathway and you make everything that comes into you positive like like chemically positive like you have like when you're on mdma um which is the street drug ecstasy um everything is awesome <laughs> everything is like yeah. it's like perfect in so many ways and you hear someone you know say something really negative and you take it in the most positive way so when in a let's say a couple's therapy session let's say someone said i really hate your mother Usually that's going to like start a fight, right? (laughs) (laughs) Because I can say I can hate my mother, but you can't say I hate your mother. But you say that in this session and and, and they're like, oh yeah, I really get it. Like, you know, and and then you're you're right into the, into, into the, the, the beneficial sides of, of the therapeutic setting. And, and so by making everything chemically like impervious and you like just let all of your oxytocin and your empathy just like sort of run free you're able to tackle really really difficult issues uh and uh you know currently there's some great clinical trials going on at johns hopkins you know sort of the maps program in la and boulder as well and also london where mdma therapy is becoming it's looking like it's going to be legal uh around america because It, it creates an, an environment, right? So this is all about stress in the environment. We, we just like chemically altered the way stress works now. Um, now you're able to deal with really difficult issues. Um, 
the downside of MDMA is you generally have a hangover. So what, like, it's just like with drinking, you have a euphoria and then you have like the shitty next day. And as you get older, the shitty next day is like worse. <laughs> it's harder and harder. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but and with MDMA, it's the same thing. So you're going to have this great couples therapy session and you have to be prepared for the shitty hangover where your next day sucks. Mm. Um, if you're going to do this on your own, I, I do want to point out and um, you should all, A, you should always do it with a, a psychiatrist. But if you did do it on your own happenstance, do not be on an, on an antidepressant because that could, yeah, could actually mm -hmm. make things really bad, especially SSRIs. Anything that modulates your serotonin levels, um, it, it could lead you into a depression that you're not going to get out of because of that hangover um, that comes out um, afterwards. All right, caveat there. Now your question was, did this help us afterwards and did it make us better overall? Um, I think what happened is that during that session, we were able to address things that were unspoken. Like, you know, when you're a couple, you have things that like things you'd rather not address. Like, you know, you could address them. You probably would be able to work it out, but it's just not worth addressing right now because it's going to be fine. It allows you to turn directly into that and have a conversation that you will both remember afterwards and also sort of automatically try to work it out because you're so empathetic and so open to the other person's issues. It, it almost sounds like um, it breaks down some walls. It does. It totally breaks down the walls. And, and uh, what you do with it is, it, you know, it's ultimately going to be up to the couple. Um, I will say that, you know, my wife and I have a really good relationship anyway, to just to say it was just the MDMA that made our relationship awesome <laughs> is, would be unfair yeah. um, to all the other work that we're doing. But, uh, you know, it, it, I think that, you know, made it, made, made it like 10% better, you know, just like, you know, we, we have, you know, I don't want to go into all the details of our relationship, but things are just in general. I'm like, I'm like, it could be, it's better sex. It's better. <laughs> yeah. No, we're, we're, you know, like, whatever. No, it's, it's just like, a, it's like our, our life is less, um, um, it gave us a tool yeah. and it gave us a conversation that was worthwhile. Uh, and I, th I thought that actually having that setting of a psychiatrist in the room kept us on the ball because the other thing that happens in ecstasy is you just want to like rub each other's skin right? <laughs> and, and yeah. you go know, like you're, you're basically too far into the exit. So, so right. having some, some, something of a barrier there to like keep yourself focused is useful. That's amazing. It, it does um, remind me of a question that I thought about asking earlier. Were there any wedges and I'm going to use a golf term here, but were there any wedges that completely shanked that you left out of the book? Yeah, good one. Yeah, totally. <laughs> a few, two things did not make it into the book, uh, and there there were there are lots of things that I, I like sort of went down the path a little bit. But two, I went down the path a, sort of a longer way, um, and then I was like, this isn't this isn't what I wanted to do. Um, one was um, uh, transcranial electric stimulation, so like electric currents in your brain, and like how did that how does that change, and and like whether or not it works, and. I don't know if it works, but whether or not it works, um, there was no active component to it. It was like, I'm going to zap your brain with electricity and then, <laughs> and then you're, you're going to be a better person. Like I, I didn't see where I fit into that. So, the, so I ditched the whole um, transcranial electrical stim stuff. Gotcha. I also ditched nootropics for the same reason. Like nootropics are like, take this smart pill and you get smarter and better. And like all it made me was feel like actually anxious. Cause it was like, it's basically like, right caffeine by different names uh, uh, yeah. and i felt like that was sort of like really bullshit um i think they have really great ideas when you talk to the nootropics companies they really want to do they have they say the right things but i thought the the, the chemical intervention was lame um and then i and then the 
and then and then I also went down the road with sound. And I think that's actually super useful. I may write about that in the future. I just didn't write about that in this book, but you can have how does sound re affect your brain and your body and your reaction to sound. I think there's something really powerful there. Um, it's just not, I didn't get to it uh, while writing this. So Scott, maybe as a way to bring the conversation to an unfortunate close, because we could talk to you all day, um, <laughs> is um, kind of the way you ended the book. Um, yeah. You know, the, your, your, your landmark chapter on called Strange Brew, which is um, ultimately, spoiler alert, there it is, Andrew, about ay ayahuasca. And um, I just, I just, it, I, I want to tell you, first of all, like I, I was actually uh, emotional reading that chapter. You did a beautiful job describing it. Um, um, it. It felt like a spiritual experience reading it. And I'm sure it was for you uh, as you experienced it. So, so well done um, on that. Um, you know, it's interesting that you use the same term for Tony as you did for Wim initially. You know, I caught that. Mm -hmm. You said, is he a madman? Is he a charlatan? And mm -hmm. so I was going to ask you to talk about Tony a little bit and what maybe what he taught you about life and and yourself. Hmm. So Tony is the is the one of the shamans that I studied that I worked with um, at the end of the book. There are actually two there. One is Luzma and one is Tony. Luzma is Tony's student, uh, and she's the reason why I went there. But Tony was the guy who like taught her everything she knows mm -hmm. and so the the i do three ayahuasca ceremonies with tony and you know he's uh he's an interesting person like you know he when you meet him when you think the word shaman right you think a guy with like feathers and like sort of like tribal outfits and right. you know deep and we are deep in the amazon like I mean, don't get me wrong i went into the peruvian amazon we are out in the jungle no doubt surrounded by jaguars um, and we, we are out there, but he's just a guy. He's like in like an Adidas soccer shirt and some like, you know, Lycra pants. And, you know, he's just a dude, right. When you, when you see him um, and, but he's also really serious. And he's like, you know, I may just be a dude out there in the world, but when we're, when we're in the setting, I am your shaman. I am your, I am the person there. And, and his job is, a, is, one, to be very knowledgeable about these plants. Obviously, he's done these experiences many, many times. And 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 I think what the the, the beauty of what a shaman is, is, is they're trying to manipulate sensations. They're trying to feel what you're feeling to some degree. They're trying to inhabit the experience so that you're you're both in that same place, just like on MDMA. You're both in that same sort of emotional place. Mm -hmm. And then they're your guide, but they're not going to take you to the end of the trip. Right. Mm -hmm. they, they, they'll, they'll try to keep you safe and sane and whatever. But you're really also on this trip on your own because it's, it's you have to do your own work. So what he, he his job is really just to hold space. Uh, and he, he, he sings songs and he taps, plays like a he didn't have a drum. He play, sort of tapped his feet on wooden floorboards in this sort of hut in the middle of the jungle. Uh, and and I, I think that way, way I end this chapter is like. I feel somewhat enigmatic about Tony. In one way, he is this this person who shows me this experience. On the on the other, I don't really. I still don't know if he's a madman or, or a charlatan at the end of it. Like I I still don't have the answer about who he is as a as a person. But I will say I had a very very powerful experience that sort of changed the way I saw the world. So that does sort of lend That's credence yeah. <laughs> to to who he is. And uh, and and. 
you know, I see the world as tensions, right? You know, it, it, everything is, is, is light and dark and good and bad. I don't see like an ultimate meaning into any one thing. It's sort of like how we interpret it. And I think that some people can have a very amazing experience with, it with somebody and some people have a very bad experience. It doesn't mean the experience isn't profound and, and, and moving and important to everyone. Do you think everybody should try ayahuasca? No, okay. I don't. Um, I think that, that, that nothing in my book is something that people have to do, right? This is not the, the 10 great things you can do to become an awesome person. Like, no, that is not the, 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 that is not the goal of this. What this is, this is my path. This is powerful for me. And I think that if any of these things speak to you, you can try it. You can go do it. And, and I feel like you, especially with something as profound as ayahuasca and, and also MDMA, where, where your ability to like bag out, like with kettlebells, I can be like, yeah, I don't want to throw kettlebells. Mm -hmm. And you're, you can walk away. With ayahuasca, you're in it for six hours. Oh, like, is it six hours? Be, wow. Yeah, it, it's, about, <laughs> it's about the six hour trip. And in some ways it lasts like 30 days in some ways, wow. because you're still having sort of recurrence of these, uh, of the experience. And no, absolutely not. Not everyone should do it. However, if you feel called to this, if this is something that you feel like you want, you want to be in a place where you are taking this seriously, you want to fully inhabit yourself and you want to have something which is, you know, ayahuasca is traumatic. It's not something that's easy. It's you're going to vomit, you're going to poop, you're going to have a, an ugly time and uh, and it won't be fun. <laughs> so, but <laughs> but after all of that and you'll you'll see why it's so moving when you read the book is that sometimes going through that hardship is what the lens you need to turn in on yourself and find something deep. So mm -hmm. no, not everyone should do it, but if you feel called to it, it is a tool that is there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I really think that's the, the essence of the book as well, that in our lives, we're going to encounter hardship and, and, and mm -hmm. I, I appreciate the, uh, the, opportunities that that you're affording people to to really understand themselves better and, and understand how we operate and how we interact and uh i i want to just thank you for for taking those on and, and thank your wife as well yeah for, <laughs> for, for being there with you so that uh we can we can learn from you and, and then hopefully learn a little bit more about ourselves as well Absolutely. And thank you for having me on. And also for all the work that you guys are doing too, because you're also spreading the world. You're also spreading your message. And, you know, we're, we're all in this together, guys. <laughs> you know, I'm not the expert. You're not the expert. We're all just trying to figure out what this thing is called life and do our best job with it. Yeah, And, you know, um, uh, if you're, if this stuff all resonates with you, please, please do like come to my website. Uh, and you can get a free chapter of the book. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll probably also have the free audio sample on, on, on uh, as soon as it's available from Audible. I'll put that on my website too. Uh, you know, you subscribe to my mailing list and I, I send very few emails out, but um, you know, you can also look at the trailer and get sort of in, in depth into it before you, you know, go on to become a wedgie. That's what we should call people. <laughs> wedgies. Wedgies. <laughs> wedgies. <laughs> sure. All right. Well, you got you got a couple wedgies sitting in front of you right now, Scott. Absolutely, especially after an hour and a half. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. awesome. Well, thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate this. Yeah. This has uh, been a lot of fun. Thanks yeah, a lot, thanks, Scott. Scott. Us too. Well, that's the episode. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. If you liked what you heard here, check out the website. ObstacleCoursePodcast.com. That's where you can subscribe, check out the show notes. If we had one request, we'd ask you to leave us a kind review and perhaps share this episode. It's not because we have fragile egos. Well. But because we want other great people like you to benefit. Speaking of great people, we have a list of people we want to thank. We've got our senior technical advisor, Andy Robertson, our media partner and web designer, Sticky Media, and of course, 
our host and snack coordinator, Judy Langford. Oh, peanut butter cookies. You can continue the conversation on Instagram and Facebook at Obstacle Course Podcast and on Twitter at Obstacle Pod. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. Keep pushing through those obstacles.